Hi. Hi. Who are you? I am Almar, and I'm an addict. What kind of addict? Attention addict. I love attention. Any attention. And what are we doing here? Uh, we're making a podcast. What is that about? Um, it's about the things like uh, people's stories, how they ended up where they are, ended up doing what they're doing. And uh, yeah, it was supposed to be about something else, but I ended up with this. Mm -hmm. uh, who are those people? Um, these are my friends. Uh, uh, yeah, basically my network, but because I wanted to make a show about me, but I didn't really have anything to talk about. So I ended up looking at the network. The network was interesting. So I kind of thought, okay, I can may maybe make something with this. So do you have already a name for this uh, podcast? Yeah, it's called The Bunker. How the hell did we end up here? And how is it connected to to the theme? Uh, how the hell did we end up here? So basically people's stories and how they went from A to B and then to C and with coincidences, decisions, traumas. Basically anything that moves you to the direction or the point where you are. Mm -hmm. So how often are you going to have this podcast? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure, but maybe like two, two times a month three times a month so do you take yourself seriously enough do you have some sponsors yeah like every other professional podcast then of course i have sponsors i have the old bar uh, that's the the greatest thing in carlin sells amazing oatmeal and skier mm. everything is handmade um, and it's available from eight to three during the weekdays, closed in the weekends, but you can order on Walt as well. And it's a place that you really want to go. Healthy yet tasty. Mm, sounds and good. then I have, yeah, and then I have um, a company called Alfred. It's alfred.cz. It's a place where you can find jobs. You can set up a job watch. You can get notified whenever there's a cool job coming along. And it's a great solution for anyone who is either looking for a job or wants to change jobs because you can find the right job without spending time looking for it. Uh, it's available in Czech, English and Slovak. And uh, yeah, check it out. Uh, Alfred.cz Yeah, those are the guys. We're talking to Carmine today. Carmine is a father, comedian, coach and a storyteller. He's from Italy, from Napoli to be exact. And on this episode, you can hear about his path and transition from where he was born to where he is today in Prague in the Czech Republic. We touch on few of the classic Italian topics, such as the Mafia and Maradona, of course. But most importantly, Carmine explains us how he became a comedian kind of out of the blue after seeing a shitty show in Scotland. How he makes his jokes, what he can't say and what he can say, and how he deals with difficult audience. Enjoy. Welcome to the Bunker Carmine. Thank you, Almar. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I your name immediately. No, everybody does. No problem. <laughs> and uh, you're my first COVID survivor. How are you feeling? I'm your first and I hope not the last. I, I feel okay. Yeah. In my family, we all got the virus one month ago and it lasted for two weeks, although some side effects remain. For example, that's scary. My wife still cannot smell or taste anything four weeks after, right? Mm. Which has good effects when the baby poos, she doesn't <laughs> smell it. It's incredible. You have shit under your nose and you smell nothing. 
<laughs> right? Which means I'm changing it all the time now. Uh-huh. Uh, but because it, otherwise it, she wouldn't know. She doesn't know. Uh-huh. She doesn't know. She's like, can you check? And I'm like, how can you not, you know, feel it? <laughs> it's it's scary. After one month. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, we we were fine, and uh, we feel we've been lucky. Okay. Um. So, I think I saw you the first time I saw you was in a you were doing a stand up comedy here yeah. in Prague, and yeah. um, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, saw you a couple of times, and um, it was always fun. Both content and body language was something that that captured me. Um, but if we if we if we go a little bit backwards, you know where it all started. So you're you're born in Italy. Whereabouts? I was born near Napoli in the south of Italy, hmm. 1977, the year of Star Wars. And uh, so it's not so far, but it feels like it's it's been quite a long journey. Between Star Wars movies or since you were born? Well, also in the sense of Star Wars movies, yeah, the way they are now, uh, but also the way people are. Yeah. <laughs> And the geographical distance between Napoli and uh, here, I, I guess. Are you are you from a like a large typical Italian family or? No, pretty standard. Four. Uh-huh. Uh, I have one brother. He lives in London. And uh, on my father's side, yeah, it was quite like we had big Christmas dinners. But uh, other than that, no, no, not a big household. Uh, nothing like that. Mm. But uh, for us, you know, like um, f- from from the outside or for, for the untrained eye, let's say, then Napoli is pizza, mafia, and Maradona. Um, is that correct? Or I mean, th- I mean, with, with the mafia, for example, or crime, do you notice it a lot there? So things are different now, and uh, they always change. Uh, I I can relate to the years when I was there, so seventies, eighties, nineties. And you always have organized crime. It's not even mafia. Mafia is in Sicily. The name in Napoli is Camorra, but it's more like gangs fighting each other. So you cannot not see it because they shoot. Every week there will be violence in the streets so much that it it wouldn't even be in the news anymore, for example, right? It just becomes part of the norm. It's part of your life. And so, uh, but I guess there are many places like that, right? Uh, uh, In Brazil, in South Africa, in the U.S., just in, in uh, Thailand, you just grow up and it's part of your life. You know that if, you, if you're looking for trouble, you will find trouble. If you go into the wrong neighborhood, you're in trouble. And there are things you shouldn't be doing. Other than that, I also want to say, you know, it's a normal place and people grow up and I had normal friends. We had normal hobbies and uh, happy family. So, yeah, there is that and that. Mm. We definitely had pizza a lot. Uh, uh, we definitely had Maradona back then a lot. Uh, so, yeah, the gangs are in the background. And how, I mean, did you ever come close to to that, like this organized crime? Like, was that like, I, I don't know, did your family or you ever affected by it? Oh, in fact, yes. Yeah, because my family on <coughs> from my mother's side, they have a um, pastry shop. Uh-huh. And uh, one guy was shot. One member of my family was actually shot, like you would see in the movies, right? This big motorcycle comes by, and then the guy shoots in your chest. And it's just a miracle he didn't die. And we were thinking why, we were wondering why, if it was a protection money issue or gang wars. Uh, but apparently, it's been a mistake. 
So this also happens when you live in a territory where, you know, organized crime runs business. There will be collateral damage. And, uh, 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 and this is something that I don't think it's spoken enough. Mm. Right? That is the one reason why it is a social problem. Because if you grow up there, you just know that violence happens. Uh, and it shouldn't be. But how, like, uh, you mentioned protection money, like, uh, w would the pastry shop have to pay protection money oh, there? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, again, I'm not so 100% sure how it is right now, because I don't live there, so I don't want to say. But certainly in the 80s, it, everybody had to pay protection money to one family or another family. And what happens is when the map changes, hmm. so one family starts to claim your street, of course, it's not a diplomatic thing with the UN and, and so on. They would just come to you and say, now you pay me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you're like, but I already paid the other guys. Uh, but there is no tribunal. There is no authority there. You know, you just either you start paying twice or you protest and then you suffer the consequences. And you can't go to the police. I mean, you can. Uh, you can. But if you're alone, you're in big trouble. Mm -hmm. So the way out of this is to shed more light. So when the media is very attentive when there is a lot of social participation, for example, then the criminals are weaker yeah. because they cannot do so much. In Palermo, Sicily, they did a fantastic uh, initiative. They started to put a, a sticker in their windows saying, we don't pay. And when everybody does it, nobody can, nobody can actually enforce it anymore because the, the mafia was actually powerless. You cannot kill an entire street. You cannot bomb. You cannot do carpet bombing. You know what I mean? So when one is isolated, he becomes a victim, disappears. But if everybody reacts and society is there, journalists are there, that's the way out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's by kind of not keeping it in the darkness. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it thrives in the darkness. Mm -hmm. And the the... But the, the um, like, for, I mean, if we take, like, culture, um, especially maybe American culture and movies, then, like, ma mafia bosses and mafia life has somehow been glorified, you know, and there have been both movies and TV, I mean, you know, The Godfather and all that stuff, and then a lot of other movies. I mean, how, how accurately or, or inaccurately do you think that this represents what, what actually was going on or is going on? that is part of the problem. You know, probably I, I write about it. I use it a lot in my comedy, but also in my education work. So let's take The Godfather or Scarface, you know, super popular movies. Part of it is true because these people live like kings. They have these huge castles. They have all the cars they want, all the women they want, all the cocaine they want. But what you don't see in the movies is that their life is very often miserable and they uh, die young and they die afflicted by so many addictions. Al Capone was a terminal cocaine addict by the age of 30. Mm. He couldn't even retain uh, poop anymore. He was just uh, destroyed already by the age of 30 due to cocaine. So this you don't see. You don't see how miserable life is really when you just embrace a life like that and then you can die anytime you know that somebody can come and um, just kill you or the police will come mm. so it's it's a life always on fear always hiding so you end up having all these cars and all these beautiful things that you cannot even enjoy mm. and 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 i think this part of the story should be more present as well yeah other than that i have no problem with 
movies or games glorifying it because I think there is a fascination in the dark side, you know, Mm -hmm. and this Lucifer side. Everybody has one moment or another moment of thought. What if I was... So there is no problem in taking that fantasy and bringing it out to life, Mm -hmm. which is what storytelling should do, right? Uh, Ideally, we should give a complete picture. So Scarface is a good example, for example, because the guy falls at the end. There is no redemption. Mm. It's dark. While in The Godfather, mm, it's, it's more tricky. And it's interesting how, how in those movies, what I always found so interesting is how we can be tricked into actually loving someone who kills for a living or, you know, or ruins lives for a living because there is always a victim in this somewhere, you know? But we, we don't, that, that, I mean, obviously this is pop culture, this is fiction, this is not reality, but, uh, but I, I had somehow glorified. But these are, because they, they work at, at very deep levels, and if you think about the archetypes, uh, you know, these legendary characters that somehow are in our collective unconscious, uh, there is one that's the fallen angel, and there is another one that's the prince of thieves, like Robin Hood. So when you create a character that's able to touch on those elements, People just resonate. We all love to see a story of a guy who steals to the powerful uh, and brings it back to the people. And sometimes gangsters, at least in the fantasy, uh, did that. Mm. They pay back to the community somehow, somehow. and help the weak. And or they are one of them. They come from poor. Yeah. And so it's a social revenge, if you like. Oh, it's interesting what you said, like this with the, the arch- archetypes, you know, because it made me think like, it is we actually we ignore the the dark side because there is a good side that we can relate to somehow you know that like if you take the sopranos i don't know if you've seen that one but you know that that guy is a total bastard tony soprano he's sleeping with his best friend's wives and stuff like that but but yeah but still in the end you know like you you feel sorry for him because tony soprano embodies the archetype of every man it's this everyday guy every ordinary joe and Jung would call it every man. Mm. And this is one of the most strong because everybody can relate to a part of it. Yeah. Right? So you have this prince of criminals, but he's just like one of us. Yeah. And this creates a very strong sense of connection with every audience. Mm. Talking about fallen angels, uh, Maradona, he, he just turned 60 and now I saw that he was admitted into rehab. Again. Recently, yeah. Probably not his first, but uh, so he played his football for Napoli, and uh, how how was that? Was that a ma- was that like a match made in heaven? You know, I have goosebumps right now. Yeah, because imagine being a child in that part of Italy. So I don't know how many listeners would know that, but Italy wasn't born one country. Italy was broken into many countries until mid nineteenth uh, century, and then it was unified by war. Now we have this narrative of unification, blah, 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 but it's mostly propaganda because it was a war. And so the South was exploited for many, for many years. Taken, people were taken, uh, businesses were destroyed, land was destroyed. And of course, this is one part of the story, right? But, but so if you grow up in the South, you know that something has been stolen from you and now th- things are not as good as they were supposed to be. Uh, and you grow up like that, with the feeling of injustice. Everything good in Italy happens in the north. Mm-hmm. And then this guy comes. 
and completely turns the table and changes the narrative. And it's a match made in heaven, as you said, because the story of Napoli is the story of Maradona uh, mm. and, and vice versa. He was yeah. born really, really poor. Now I cut goosebumps. Exactly. <laughs> he didn't even have the money for to buy a football or shoes. Uh, 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 and, and then he rose to the stars. Mm. Uh, and when he came to the city, there was a big skepticism, but also a big uh, enthusiasm about this, this figure who was very, very good. Everybody knew it already. He was coming from Barcelona. But nobody knew how good. But Napoli was a bad team at the time. It was just almost at the bottom of the table. Mm. Uh, and then he was able, almost by himself, he was able to just raise it. And in a two or three years, I think, Napoli won the first league mm. and almost won another one and then went on to win Alpha UEFA Cup back mm-hmm. then and then another league. So Napoli was on top of the game and uh, and on top of the news. It was glorious. Yeah. I remember when Napoli won the first time the league, everything was painted in blue, like with spray paint. Everything in the city was painted in blue. If you had your car parked out, it would be the morning after would be blue. Yeah. And people didn't mind. Yeah. Like, I was just I'm part of the celebration. Yeah. Uh, the problem was if you have if you were a supporter of another team, then you were really sorry twice because also your property was vandalized. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, it was just a carnival, you know. But did he somehow get the city on the map, or get it, I don't know, get it somehow? I mean, here we are, forty years later, and we're still talking about it. Yes, yeah. he did put the city on the map big time. Um, there, there are still documentaries made about it, and and then you see how Napoli was in the late eighties, early nineties. And again, it's a heroic narrative. You think about it because it's. From the ashes yeah. up and then again down, and and this is really just the perfect story. Yeah, yeah, he's quite the character. I, I remember when I went to Napoli, I could still see there were flags with his face on, and they were still selling oh, yeah, his T-shirts. Yeah. And this is like you three, four al- years ago. Altars in the in the in the streets, yeah. shrines like to 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 Jesus or something. People keep their uh, his his T-shirts. People keep his hair. He's worshipped yeah. like a god. But he was different than the other football stars like Pele and and uh, Beckenbauer and all those because he 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 never really capitalized on his fame, right? In some way, he was always a man of the people, and yeah. he was never a system guy, so a, a man of the uh, big big machine. He was against putting his name under trademark because he said, and I quote, this is in the documentary that came out last year, he said, I don't want Nike or Adidas to make big money from my name. Hmm. But if the average Joe fakes a t-shirt and sells it on the street with my name on it, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. If I'm helping ordinary people to you know, live by, that's good for Maradona. He used to speak about himself in third person, really like dissociated sociopath. Uh, but in this way, he was he was a man of the people, and just the people loved him. And 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 this what you're saying, yeah, th- th- this is a perfect match for the city because it's the city of the underdogs in some way, right? Exactly, exactly. It is an underdog city. It used to be capital of a kingdom for five centuries, and then nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and a lot of people have just to improvise and get a living day by day. There is mm. a huge underground economy. They're huge. Yeah, um, I guess but a, this lot, is a lot of that. A lot of that is fake merchandise with the Maradona name on it. Still, uh, but uh, yeah. Napoli was doing not so much anymore. But it was still doing well in football. So still, you can buy your fake T-shirts. 
But you know, that's also why, in a way, I'm very happy I was born there, because you, in the culture of the city, you have problem solving, creativity, uh, a certain sense of fatalism, because the Vesuvius is also there, right? Mm. It's huge. It's like living under an atomic bomb, ready mm. to go off. So in a way, uh, it's in my family's culture that if I have a good day, you have to enjoy a good day right now because you don't know what's going to happen. Mm. And this is all really part of our upbringing. And I think creativity and art as well. Everybody has music somehow in their culture. And I'm grateful I come from there. Good food, especially. And it's a beautiful city in its ugliness somehow. Do you know? I, I don't know how to say it in a better way. That it, it It's not like monumental cathedrals or buildings that you necessarily remember. There is that too, though. Mind, yeah, but, mind but, you. but somehow, for me, it was... Mind me, I've only been there once, but uh, for me, it was more like the colorfulness and the kind of... I don't know. It was some rawness there that I really, really liked. Yes, I think uh, I think I would agree with that, and it's really authentic still. Yeah, the spirit yeah, authentic, is there. Yeah, the spirit you, is there. No matter where you're from or your color of your skin or anything, you can stop in the street, have a chat with some people, and everybody's a comedian there, so they would have jokes, maybe even invite you for a coffee or share whatever they have. And this is still happening. Mm -hmm. So profit is not the 100% you know, number one drive behind everybody mm -hmm. still, mm -hmm. which is something you have in Rome and, and the other big, big cities in Italy. Unfortunately, yeah, this, this popular life is a little bit forgotten. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, you grow up there, normal family. You, you, you went to see Maradona, right? Once. Yeah. And I remember. Yeah. Yeah. How old were you? If I try to track, I think I was maybe 11. Uh-huh. Then 88. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that must have been amazing. Uh, the, the match wasn't great. I think it was nil-nil. But what I remember was, you know, you had some power of the stadium. Full. Yeah. Full. 60,000 people in one arena. And uh, back then I had never seen... Anything like this. Anything like that, yeah. So... And chan chanting the name, chanting the Diego, Diego, it was unbelievable. I think I've only seen it in the Gladiator movies and so yeah. something like that. Yeah, it's that feeling. Yeah, he was their icon, I mean, and still is. Still is. Yeah. Uh, so we had, yeah, we had um, pretty normal life, but then you go, you, you study there and you go to university, right? Yep, and I did, I studied business. Yeah. Was that the uh, obvious choice? No. Uh, the thing is, I, I had no idea what to do because I liked, and I still do, I like many different things. So I knew I wanted to I wanted to study something, but my dad wanted me to study something technical, and I didn't. So in the end, I studied business because it's a compromise, and nobody was really happy, but nobody was hurt. Um, I enjoyed parts, but I didn't really like it. And so in the end of the day, when I was done with it, I, I just started to find a career in what I really wanted to do. Mm. Which was? Which was youth work and education. I, start, I started to work in the um, European Information Center in a small city in Italy, which is called Viterbo. Not many people know it, even in Italy. Uh, and my job was to bring information about opportunities for European projects to the young people of rural schools, rural communities. I was driving, I think, oof, I don't want to say a number, but I was driving everywhere in this region 
which is Lazio, the central region of Italy, where Rome is, which is mostly rural, small villages. And, and that was the guy going from one school to another and to a municipality, telling people about how to study abroad, how to go abroad for, for, for youth exchanges or for um, volunteering. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was fun. It was fun. And I did that for almost 10 years. In the meantime, I was uh, developing myself as a speaker, as a trainer, as a lecturer. Mm, and so that became my freelance profession as soon as I could. Sustain it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how, uh, lecturing what and, and training what? Well, again, uh, for example, history uh, and politics of the European Union. So we had these hardcore subjects, but also intercultural learning, how different people from different countries deal with things, how to live together, how to solve problems. Creativity became a topic, how to develop uh, solutions, how to mm, find creative solutions to problems, how to be together when we are different and we want to find a solution to a common problem that mm -hmm. we have. And is that what you would call storytelling or, or uh, that comes later or, or how is that? That has always been because uh, when later I started to create for myself a profile as a professional, okay, so I'm, I'm here and I'm able to train people. I'm able to create learning experiences. Mm. But what should be my trademark? You know, some people do outdoors education, some people do uh, theater. What should be my trademark? And and then I looked in my in my background and uh, that it was storytelling. For all my life, I've been a big big uh, fan of stories, hmm. from cinema to books to comics to video games, you name it. And so all these stories that I was somehow absorbing were there, and they became my biggest resource when I when I when I needed it. So what I do now. I use storytelling and story crafting to help people and organizations to develop their communication or their potential. Sounds I'm, cool. I'm, yeah, I'm very confused. So are my parents. <laughs> Can you, okay, could you take like a concrete example of, of, of one case? Yeah, say you want to become a little bit better and more effective in crafting your speech. Mm -hmm. We could take a series of workshops and go and see a little bit the art and a little bit the science of why stories are so effective and how to tell a good story, how to structure a good story, what are the stories that fascinate us and why. And in the end, we see what we learned. Mm -hmm. Public speaking is one part of it, but only one part of it. I also have people who are writers or maybe um, they do photography and they just want to understand a little bit better why stories are so powerful. Mm -hmm. Companies but and NGOs who want to understand what are the hidden messages in what we put out, for example, yeah, adverts. Yeah, yeah, now I get, now I, I'm get, I'm now when you mentioned corporates <coughs> and stuff like that, then I, now I get what you mean. So it's basically the story behind the brand or the also, meaning behind what we do, etc. Yeah. That's why archetypes are important. The framing is important. Values are important. All the hidden elements of communication that maybe you see just one brand and you immediately don't recognize, but it's all embedded in there. Yeah. So you're like a hypnotizer. No, I am a traveling collector of stories and then I tell the stories and people see something in there that becomes theirs. Mm-hmm. 
And this and this this brought you here to Prague, right? In a way, yes, because that's how I met my wife. Uh-huh. She's Czech. She's Czech from Ostrava. Mm-hmm. And we met in Switzerland in 2011 mm-hmm. in a training course on the Alps, which was about rites of passage in nature for education. Mm-hmm. Sounds scary, right? So, yeah. Punishing someone to pass an exam or... or uh, rites of passage are ceremonies that people create to celebrate moving from one stage of life to another. So in short, a wedding is a rite of passage. So is a funeral. And there are beautiful ways and very effective to create them for education. Mm. Uh, I did it for myself, for example, with my wife. We went to the desert of California in October 2014, and we, we joined the ceremony there, which comes from the Native American tradition, mm. and it's called uh, Vision Fast. And it's four days and four nights out in the desert, alone, fasting, only with water, mm. alone, reflecting on your life and asking yourself the right questions, because you have a lot of time, and giving yourself time for the answers to explore. But what's the point of the fasting part? It's very fascinating what happens when you're fasting. Mm. After the first 24 hours, the mind uh, enters a different state, Mm. becomes sharper. Uh, Your dreams become more vivid. So you have a lot of wisdom and a lot of insight even coming from your dreams somehow. So you have to be more receptive to that. Uh, More clarity. Mm-hmm. Also, after the first 24 hours, at least for me, I don't feel the hunger anymore. Uh, if, you, if you think about it, there is a lot of energy that goes every single day ab- around food. Shopping, preparing, cooking, and then disposing of, and then cleaning, and then going to bathroom, and, and it's all gone. Mm-hmm. So also, simply, your, your process is open, free. Mm-hmm. So that's also part of fasting. I did, I did it before, and right now I'm doing intermittent fasting, if you know what yeah, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. 16 hours per day and no problem. It yeah. actually gives me more energy and more clarity. Yeah, I've, I've tried that, and I feel that the energy level is more sta- stable somehow, and, yeah, and, yeah. and everything is more regulated. Yeah. But how, so th- so this five or four four days without f- food and, and uh, in, the, in the middle of nowhere, w- in the desert, what, so what was the p- purpose? I mean, what's the, th- it's a passage, it's from one st- states in life to another one was it what, what was that we wanted to celebrate well i would i wanted myself i wanted to reflect if i was ready to move from italy and to move to prague uh-huh and in that process i also decided to propose to my wife so also to step into that uh chapter of my uh-huh. story so right after i actually proposed to 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 my wife who was also there with me so we did the whole thing in the desert and uh, and I, I I found the energy and the decision to 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 do it, uh-huh. you know that I was ready to step into what was my next part of the story. And, and so so in this way, the right right of passage is <coughs> is that uh, is it uh, how do you say uh, uh, a it, catalyst? It it has elements of that because mm. it's a challenge, mm. also f- physical and mental, right? So if I want to be an adult, I need to be able to organize resources, organize time, be responsible for myself, you know, take care of my shit. Mm. 
Mm. And when you're out in the desert, even if it wasn't dangerous, I also want to say that no danger at all. But you have to be a little bit careful because, you know, you, you fall, you break a leg, you are in trouble. And, yeah. and, and, and so that was part of the experience. Mm -hmm. Also managing your water carefully, not eating for four days. But another big part is simply to be alone with yourself. And I remember having so much time. I went out to reflect on one of my biggest issues, which is the fear of dying. Mm -hmm. And I was there. And sometimes when you're there alone, especially in the night, you just can't wait for the time to go. You know, I'm like, oh, I can't wait for tomorrow and then the day after and then I'm gone. And then this huge idea appeared to me. I came here because I'm afraid of dying and I can't wait for this to be over. You know, it's such a big uh, irony right in my face. That was a huge moment. And did it change your fear of dying then? Yeah, it changed that. It changed my fear of commitment, uh -huh. uh, my fear of change, my fear of moving. I, I will not say they're gone, but they, they were transformed. So this is a pretty big point in your life because, you know, it, it kind of yields off a lot of... Uh, you're challenging your inner fears on a lot of different elements. And then, I mean, you... You decide to propose to your wife. Yeah. So and sometimes this is also part of what, what I do now, working with groups, or I should say before COVID now, mm. live events are not happening for a year, but this was also part of what I did. You would, you would form a group of people, adults, meet for a weekend, and in the middle of the weekend you organize somehow a little experience that reminds this, for example, spending the night out alone in the woods is enough. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It takes people out of the comfort zone and, you know, gives them time to think. And yeah. Yeah. Um, it's nothing new. Yeah. The scouts do it, for example. It's really not. Yeah. New. Yeah. And we see it in tribalism. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, um, and, and I mean, uh, actually a school graduation is a rite of passage in a way. I mean, um, yes. Um, so, when, when, when was it? How, how long have you been here in Prague? I mean, what year did you come here? I moved in 2015. Okay, so it's five years coming now, right. right? And how has Prague treated you? Oh, I was happy to be back in the city mm. because I was born in the city and for 11 years I lived in these rural areas. And uh, But deep inside I'm a city boy, mm -hmm. uh, which means good and bad. Mm. But I was happy to be in the center of Europe in a city that's economically thriving and a lot of people don't know what that means, how lucky they are just to be here where everything is happening. And uh, I, I love living here. Of course, is it perfect? No, but no places. Um, and then there are different cultures. So I have very international group of friends like you, my American friends, my Czech friends, my English friends. And this is also something I love because mm -hmm. if you live in Italy in a smaller town, you don't have that opportunity, right? Uh, and, and, and this opens your mind. Mm. But does it, so, but do you see like Italy differently now after you moved away? I mean, do, does it, uh, does the distance change it somehow? Yes. In what way? And uh, good and bad. I don't think there is any one expert who's 100% happy mm. of living because there are things you miss. There's a, of course, my family's still there but also a strange feeling of guilt, like I left, you know, there is this idea that you left a place and then, um, but looking from a distance, I see that Italy is not doing very well right now. And uh, what they miss is the capacity to, to, to change and to embrace 
future. Mm. It's a country with a very, very old history. Mm. And sometimes sometimes that's that's dominating. It's limiting. Yeah. People are always looking back. The legacy. Yeah. Always looking back. Very conservative, very traditional. While uh, while here you have past and future. Mm. And uh, and I'm happy. Another thing is when you're an expert here, for example, here in Prague, I can only follow, I don't know, 40% of politics, uh, which means I don't understand all the bad shit that happens, mm. but this is also liberating somehow. Yeah, you're somehow in a bubble in a way. Yeah, although, for example, my wife is Czech, so I really try to keep a grasp. I vote. Mm -hmm. I really try to keep a grasp on what's happening, but I don't understand everything that happens, and I think that's in a way healthy. Mm because it gives a distance. Hmm. If you if you could take one one thing from Italy and bring it here, what would that be? Oh, I think a little bit more, but I have to be careful here because this is stereotyping a mm -hmm. lot, right? Mm -hmm. So I was going to say uh, uh, happiness. Yeah. Uh, uh, a little <laughs> bit, it's easier to make friends and then to stay friends uh, wherever you move. Yeah. So in, in places in... In different places in the south, for example, you become best friends in a week. Mm -hmm. uh, in other cities in the north, for example, it's harder. But here, people have close commu closer communities, and mm. you really need to break into them. Mm. For example, by marrying one. Yeah. That, that worked in my case. Otherwise, it happens that people just wouldn't take you as one of their friends and there is nothing bad and evil in that. It's just the way it it's is. It's just the culture, yeah. It's yeah. just the way it is. Mm. They have their buddies and they go for beer and you're not invited. Mm -hmm. mm. And so sometimes I miss that. Like, come on, guys, loosen up a little bit. Mm. Um, but that, and, and maybe the seaside. Yeah, my, yeah, my, I was on, yeah, on the yeah. phone with my dad the other day and it's 25 degrees in Napoli and here it's three. So it's a little bit harder to compare. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, really, I miss the blue sky dead yeah right so five years here and then when i found you you were a stand-up comedian right how did that come around oh that's another story i was in scotland hmm. for so that work. starts that starts after you come to prague right the, yes uh, i okay. started here as uh -huh. a comedian well again i was already into public speaking for like 12 years and 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 of course you are, you it's it's all about the hours and the exposure and the practice and working with different groups also very hard very challenging groups imagine rural high school in italy you know so the crowd work mm. so all that stuff is in inside but then as a stand up comedian i never really considered myself one until i was in scotland for a, a training course and in that time, there was the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh, which is this huge, probably the biggest in the world. All the August, it's all live performance and all the city of Edinburgh is crazy with live arts. Is, is it like the circuses in town and a lot of different things, right? Yeah, all the arts, the music, all the perform yeah, yeah. musical, yeah. theater, improv, comedy, mm -hmm. uh, you name it. So we were there and this friend of mine who's also uh, a tutor for me, a mentor for me, she took me to, to a couple of shows and we went to see a comedian. I will not say the name because I don't think it's cool. But I found the performance so bad that I thought, oh, so this is stand-up comedy? 
So if I work on my material and polish my act a little bit, I can also do that. Uh-huh. For the first time, it was relatable to me because otherwise I would only see the big names you know, on TV and they look impossible because it's so perfect. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, you see these guys who have 35 years of experience or, or all the Netflix uh, directors and editing and behind editing, them. Yeah, exactly. And the room full of people who will laugh at your jokes completely on your side. So that's impossible. But when you see it live on stage uh, in, a, in, a, in a second-rate club, then it becomes uh, relatable. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened to me. So I came back to Prague and I started to write down my little jokes. And I found uh, open mic events here and uh, I was brave enough to say yes. They took me on stage. I did my five minutes. It wasn't terrible. And since then, it's been... Now I would be starting the fourth year Mm. of doing it. Also, you know, semi-professionally. It became part of my training work because it's it's good for everybody to learn how to master your humor and to be mm, loose on, on stage in front of a stranger crowd mm, and I organize gigs also for corp- corporations sometimes or NGOs charities uh, universities and that's fun mm. but uh, but the, with um, like the the comedy and the humor like so so you um, let's say I mean what is funny in Italy might not be funny here and, and, and the other way around. I mean, there's a difference between countries, cultures, and, and stuff like that. How, how do you... How, is, it, is it helpful to be an Italian in, in Prague in that sense that you can make fun of being Italian? Or, or It's a great help. Yeah. One thing is because in order to find humor in things, an outsider point of view helps a lot. And for example, I was reading that in the U.S., 4% of the population is Jewish, but 60% of comedians are Jewish or something like that, right? Uh So an outsider perspective is a great help because you look at everyday life and you find all the contradictions and the paradox, which normal people wouldn't see because it's their life. So that really helps. Plus, I can bring the Italian card. In that sense, it's lucky because everybody thinks that they know Italy. And so if I make a joke about mafia or pizza, it helps to break the ice. And of course, in my comedy, I try to bring the complexity. Uh, um, even I joke about mafia, but I try to, I try to, and I don't always manage, but I try to show how it's a tricky topic. Mm. And not, not only about, you know, the cool gangster and, and people dead in, in your fridge or uh, how it really affects people, for example, living there. And... And also it helps because you work with international crowds. I do comedy in English mm-hmm. here in Prague. So, of course, every audience that we have is international. We have Czech people, we have Slovaks, but we also have Americans, Asians, Indians. Um, and, and so we somehow use comedy as a language mm-hmm. to communicate. It's clear that not everything goes to everybody, mm. uh, but that's part of the game. Mm. And you also learn as a performer that you want to at least reach most of the people most of the time. And if you manage to do that, you have a good show. You're funny. Mm. But do you uh, do you see like the, let's say, is, is the humor, the Czech humor different from the Italian humor? Or I mean, and do you need to somehow try and adapt yourself? So I don't think I have to adapt 
the Czech humor because my audience wouldn't be majority Czech. But if it would be. Uh, yeah, you'd have to because you have to make people laugh. And so it's not about you. I think there are different opinions, right? But my idea is I'm here to make you laugh. Mm -hmm. So I need to find out what's your uh, trigger. Mm. It happened to me once. I was invited to a corporate show. And so I had my 25 minutes of material, most international material. But I didn't know that the audience was all from Central America. Not America, Central America. Honduras, uh, Panama, Nicaragua. and so I had nothing for those guys. Like, you know what I mean? I entered the room, I look at them, and I'm like, you guys will not even understand one joke. And and in fact, the only thing I managed to, to get a few laughs on, on married life. Mm -hmm. Because that is material, having a child, having a wife, that more or less relates. Everywhere. More or less. Yeah. Uh, um, but But... Italian references, European references, zero, you uh -huh. know, you know. And uh, so knowing your audience works, but also you have to, you have something, you need to have something to say that that people will understand, those people will understand. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a, and, and, and if you, like, if you, if you would say the same, like, so the stuff that you do here in Prague, when you do stand up in Prague, could you go back home to Italy and to say the same stuff in Italian? I have done a couple of shows in Italy. Not mm. everything goes. Mm. So if I go to Italy and I say, why Palmovka is a dodgy place? Yeah, it wouldn't work. The room would be, the room would be complete. Is, yeah. but, but I could use Prague and I could use being an Italian abroad because then there is that experience and half of the Italians have been abroad or they have somebody in the family who lives abroad. So that is relatable. So it's also about finding the right angle sometimes. The same story can be uh, can work in different contexts if you just turn it around a little bit. Mm. So, what about the like the nervousness on 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 stage? I mean, do you do you get this stage fright or, or always? Yeah. And and even now, look, I started in two thousand one mm. as a professional speaker, so it's almost twenty years. Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes, 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 yes. Even if it's like fifteen people, even even if it's eight people on a Wednesday afternoon. Uh, yes, always. And how do you deal with it? So one thing that really helps is is practice. So when I'm self-confident, because I have rehearsed my stuff well enough, and I tried it already two or three times or 20 times, so I know what works, you know, that helps. Because mm -hmm. you go on stage and you may miss one joke, but the next one will hit. And, and somehow you're confident. Uh I also have to say one drink or two help. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. loosen you up a little Me bit. Me and the audience. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is part. Some some comedians say no, no, no. I only perform dry because that's a true performer. I'm like, yeah, but I've been. A, I had a hard day changing nappies, so thank you. Yeah. I need a drink. <laughs> but uh, but the the um, so when is it like when you go on stage? You're doing your comedy like. When do you know if you're good or bad? I mean, what's the like? Do do you feel it on the inside from the start, or is it just the response from the audience, or what? What's the? Um... Uh, I think, in order to create comedy, connection is the keyword mm. for me. Mm. And so, I wear my comedian face, no matter how I feel inside. I put my mask on. I get on stage and I start to connect. I look at people in the eyes. And I make the first two or three jokes that, that are icebreakers. And then I know. 
and then I know how the night is going to go. Sometimes there is a bad start and I can snatch the act back, like I can get a few laughs, but uh, I can can tell from the beginning. Um, And that's how I know. It happened to me that I I changed my material mid-act. Like uh-huh. In the middle of an act, I'm like, I don't go this way. I'm not. I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel confident. I, there is no reaction, and so I sort of go 180 degrees back into something more comfortable, more, more, maybe even um, easier somehow, mm-hmm. less edgy. Is that so? You can just kind of stop in your mind and go back and okay, I'm gonna change course into and and then you have material for that course. It comes with. Uh, practice uh-huh. because I have now or I sh- should say I used to have because now I have very little practice we were doing live shows in Prague uh, July August and then stopped again and so it's very hard because it is really like tennis if you don't practice three times per week you, you lose it uh, but I used to have a couple of hours of material maybe a, a 50 minutes of strong material I did my solo show in February and it went well so when you have 50 minutes, you can choose. Yeah. You can choose. And so if I feel, okay, fat jokes will work tonight. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mafia jokes will not work tonight. Or let's go airplane because these people have been traveling to be here. And so this is something that you can do when you have enough choice to choose from. Yeah, yeah. You but have a stock in the warehouse. The, 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 the pilot is always on. And when I'm performing, half of my brain is performing and the other half is checking constantly how it's going and uh, what should i do next Uh it's multitasking it's very scary that's why that's why the nervousness sometimes my hands really shake Mm -hmm. Uh, but then when it works it's really beautiful but you say so like you you um you say that you have has happened to you that kind of midway through a set or in the beginning of a set you feel that this is not going to work here let's say i don't know like you mentioned like uh fat jokes might not work in in a certain crowd and or, or 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 I don't know feminist jokes or whatever, but do you do you ever fear that that the jokes that you're making today will prevent you from <laughs> I don't know getting elected as a politician or getting appointed or getting a new job or whatever in the future like we're seeing happening all over the world. You know I don't know, I really don't know. But do you think about it? No. To be honest, I don't think I'm at that level, Hollywood level, that one past tweet could compromise my career. Maybe if you are into Disney movies and then they really go and screen your Twitter activity for the last 20 years. And if if they find a racist joke, they stop you. But to be honest, I don't have an issue with that. You know, if Disney sells to children, uh, that's one thing they want to look after. And it's fine. It's their choice. Um, I never lost an opportunity and in fact I think I got more because I have this double life that I am a comedian but I'm also into education and human rights and and, uh, civil activism and everybody needs a laugh Mm. so sometimes it happens that I was called as an entertainer at the end of a conference on on, uh, European education and I was like you know the jokes that I do right they can be quite dark and they were like don't worry we, we need it everybody needs to laugh and when you're there as a comedian, you have a special license to kill. You are allowed to tell dark jokes, but everybody knows their jokes. Mm. 
and it, uh, sometimes when they ask me, the metaphor I use is, is boxing. So if, I, if me and you, we punch each other on the, in the face right here outside, people see us, they're going to think we're crazy and they're going to call to the police. And I, I'm happy because you not, not punch the, the shit Czech, out of Not, in the Czech not here, you're very, right. Not yeah, here. But yeah. let's say in, an, another <laughs> in, in another country where people have human feelings, they would see you punching me in the face, they would call the police. Yes. And I'm glad they do. But if we do it uh, on the ring and we mm. call it boxing, it's all right because people know it's sport, it's entertainment, and they even pay the ticket. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same for jokes. If I start telling abusive jokes here in the street, well, again, maybe here they would pass, but in the street or in a pub, it's a guy abusing other people. Mm. But on stage, it's something else. It's a ceremony. It's a special place. And people need to have that special understanding that what happens there is not necessarily real, mm. and it's not even what I think. Sometimes I, I say exaggerated stuff, just to provoke a reaction in myself and in the audience. And if people hate the joke, hate the joke, because it's a racist joke or a heavy joke, I think it's great. Mm. Like, ask yourself why you hate the joke. Don't hate me, because mm. I'm only a messenger right now. At least this is my process. And not always people understand it, but, you know, it's fine. I, I, get, the pro uh, I get what you're describing, and I think the, the, the uh, comparing it to boxing or, 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 or any, any kind of thing like that is very kind of, transparent but on, on the other hand what we're seeing is the opposite we're actually seeing that you know um, a large group of people seems to be getting offended on behalf of on other people on or on behalf of, of yeah. groups of people yeah. or, or, or topics or, or whatever yes plus um, we seem to be trying to erase large parts of history and people from history because of their opinions that we are viewing with today's classes on you know I don't know, something that happened 30 years ago or 50 years ago. And we're punishing them if we can. Let me see what I think about that. So it's a very compli complicated, complex topic. I think one thing is to go back to history and see celebrated heroes like Julius Caesar or Christopher Columbus and also say, you know, but we are worshipping these guys, but they were mass murderers. Mm -hmm. So why is Stalin hated and Julius Caesar and Napoleon are uh, revered as heroes? Mm. So I think in that sense it's great because everybody can just get a more complex view on history. And there's nothing wrong in that. Uh, destroying the work of an artist or an intellectual because we look it outside of the, of, the, of the context, I think it's more problematic. I would never destroy or cancel or censor, but then it's important to get the context. And the problem is in, in school or education, we don't always do that. You just, you know, you know that that guy is famous, but you don't even know why, you don't know uh, the historical period in which they lived. So it's complicated. Mm, I know, back to the original point, I know there are a lot of people angry all the time because we live in complicated times. Uh, and everybody wants to be right. Everybody wants to be right and everybody wants to suppress and destroy the other guys. I think the only healthy way out is to eliminate the other guy, the notion of the other guys. We are in this together. COVID is a good example. There is no uh, yes, no. There is no healthy, unhealthy. We are a community. We are an ecosystem in a way. What I do affects you. What you do affects me. Um, and whenever a hard choice is taken, everybody has consequences. Mm. Everybody. Uh, we see it every day in politics, etc. And I think comedy for me was was a big teacher. 
because I learned that nobody is incredibly special. Nobody is above the others. We are all equally not so important. Mm -hmm. So I joke about myself. I joke about my body shape. But I also joke about you and your body shape mm. and the next guy and the next lady and the next unspecified person. Mm. And there is one for everybody. Mm. As long as I try to keep that balance that we are all in the same boat and we are all here to have fun because life is scary sometimes, then I think it can even be healthy. Mm. But I think like you, what you said now, you said that you... You make fun of yourself. There, there's you, you know, and I've I've seen that, and I actually, uh, it's a, it's one of the things that I really appreciate about your content is that you know you're actually making a lot of fun of yourself, and in some way I I, I thought about it when I saw it. I like okay, he's kind of disarming the critics because you know you you kind of saying well, I'm on the same boat like you, and I'm gonna make fun of you later. I mean, is this a tool that you think that comedians use in general to kind of how do you say filter? the crowd so that they can get away with more? In a workshop, I would say, yes, it's a tool. And for some people, it's science. And for some people, it's just instinct or an art. Mm. But in the end, it's effective. It works. Because first of all, I, when you are on stage, comedy sometimes is about power, right? You are on stage and you're the one guy with the microphone. So to disarm yourself, sometimes is the first thing to do. You take that power away from you. Um, which also creates connection. So we go back to what I said before. Some people don't do it. I see especially on young male performers, they go on stage, they're all cocky, and they start with this attitude, I'm telling you the truth. Boom, boom, boom. And sometimes they are funny, but they don't connect to everybody because a lot of people are not ready to hear the truth from a 20 years old there on stage. You know, who are you to teach me about life? <laughs> but if I'm there and I bring this attitude, I've been through a lot of shit, guys. And this is what happened to me. And this is me now. And now let's talk. Yeah. And this is different. And I think I can bring more people on board. Men, women, young, old. And at the end of the day, I want to have most of the people laugh most of the time. Mm. But I, yeah, I, I think I, 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 I kind of agree with what you're saying is that I think that the... the um but, but the alternate, more experienced comedian is and the more that he kind of is willing to make fun of himself, then his material somehow becomes more acceptable, even though it, it could be unacceptable by presented by somebody else. A, a teacher once told me, imagine you're playing Monopoly money, mm. fake cash. Mm. When you make, when you please the audience or you make a joke on yourself, you earn cash. And then you can spend that cash by making a mistake or by insulting others, you know? So it's all a balance. Yeah, and credit. But at some point, if you're out of credit, people are not gonna follow you anymore. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I think that picture really helps. Um, so what about that guy in the crowd that is always yelling when, when, when comedians, there is always this one or two guys or girls or something or, you know, hecklers. someone, yeah, yes. hecklers, yeah. Hecklers. What, what, how, how does that, I mean, is that disturbing? It, for me, yes, a lot. Maybe because of what I told you, my mind is always multitasking. So if somebody says something, even in the back of the room, I am completely distracted. Uh -huh. Sometimes when, when I'm lucky, I can interject to that. I can take that into the act and maybe have the right response at the right time. And that's the biggest laughter I'm, I'm, I'm going to have that night. Some other time just pisses me off. Mm. 
And then maybe I say it. I say, hey, man, do you want the microphone? Do you think this is so interesting? And it just stops the flow and everybody gets pissed. Maybe people will be on my side because, I mean, they're there for the show, right? Not yeah. for that guy. But but anyway, it breaks the flow and it's just annoying. So in the end, nobody's really winning. But I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it in shows. So that it kind of, the some some comedians can kind of take it into, as you're saying, they can, I don't know, incorporate it into their... Yeah. And that's the best yeah. when you're able to really work with what you have. And that's the difference why live comedy is so much more interesting when it happens in the live uh, clubs mm -hmm. uh, than anything you can get on YouTube yeah. or Netflix. Um, but you, you need to be fast. And also, I'm doing comedy in a language that's not my first language, so also that reaction speed is a little bit slower. Mm. And uh, so it's a working pro it's a process, always, always learning, always growing. And how about this, uh, the, like the material? How do you create the material? I mean, what is it just everyday thing, or, or do you have to sit down and, and write it, or how, how, what's the process? Here? I sit down and write, and I found out. They say you need two or three years to find your voice. So at the beginning, it was really I'm embarrassed by the stuff I did at the beginning, like everybody probably is, and it's okay. At the beginning, one thinks. They are so clever and they have all these universal messages and truth about politics and life and religion. But then I found out, the more I was going on stage, I found out what I really have unique is stuff from my everyday life. Mm. Because let's face it, uh, everybody has jokes about politicians and Donald Trump and Babish and so everybody. So if I bring my j political jokes on stage, even if they're very, very good, there's a chance somebody already told them, somebody already heard them. So who cares? You know, everybody was so tired about uh, politi American politics. Even if you are on the Democrat or Republican, you just don't want to hear it anymore. Enough. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I bring my own life experience of being an Italian, being 43, having a child, another one on the way, Czech wife, living in Czech, this is unique and at the same time universal because everybody connects to one side or the other, you know? And that stuff really works. Mm. So in the end, I started to do more and more personal, uh, relatable stuff. And it's not easier. It doesn't mean it's cheaper or easier. You can go and touch any topic from racism to uh, mafia, as I told you, addictions. You can, If you want, you can be very, very uh, deep. But the starting point is my everyday life. Mm -hmm. And and for me, I had to learn that. And And... And do you think that this, what you said earlier, that 4% of, of, of Americans are Jewish, but 60% of the comedians, do, do you think that this, if you were back home in Italy, in, in your village, do you think you would have turned into becoming a stand-up comedian? Or would you have the, how much does the environment and the fact that you're here as a minority, you know, play? It does help. Uh -huh. It does help. I found myself the only Italian in the English-speaking circuit. So people would remember me. Uh -huh. mm, in in Italy, I would probably be the Napoli guy. So that also, you know, you bring whatever you have. Yeah. But to live in a big international uh, city with a big English-speaking community, of course, helps a lot. Mm. And also, I developed my stand-up comedy in English, so that's my language for for per performance. And my models are English. S so when I work in Italian, I'm translating back to Italian. And it's, as you said before, it's very different. In Italian, you need to use regional uh, uh, context elements, mm -hmm. dialects, no. original words. 
because that's how comedy works. I mean, Italian comedy is super old. It goes back to ancient Rome. Mm -hmm. But it's something different from the Anglo-Saxon stand-up comedy that's American and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, like, becoming a, a stand-up comedian, does it kind of... Are you expected to be funny all the time? I mean, do people, like, when they know who you are and what you do, is it like, you know, when you walk into the room, you're supposed to say a joke? I mean, is it like a... Sometimes like a yes. ju jukebox or sometimes people expect that or you're a comedian tell me a joke and I'm like look it's really not how it works because now whatever I say will not make you laugh and then you think I'm a bad comedian you want to see comedy come to the clubs so even now uh, we're doing this which is more like a live uh, interview about life about everything I'm not bringing my hello I'm a comedian good evening and so I'm not telling jokes if something I say is accidentally funny great but it's really you know, being a comedian is 20, maybe 18% of my mind, my life as well. And it's it's hard sometimes to be trapped into one role. Mm. Um, it's true on the other side that immediately it piques people's interest. Um, yeah. It's a little bit like saying, I don't know, I play the guitar and then you are everybody's focus of the attention because they want your music. Oh, um, but I think deep inside is because speaking in public, it's such a scary thing mm. that when you say you you do it as a habit people respect that mm -hmm. the craziness maybe mm -hmm. just because you are the crazy joker that can do that and what's the what's the reward in it for you i mean like is there like uh what, what is it that kind of gets you off because i know i mean i know the comedy scene here in prague a little bit i mean um, and i i, I can tell that it's it's not million dollars a night and not the sex as well <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna tell you not for me at least i don't know maybe some people that like here but uh what is it is the adrenaline is it the you know to be creative or is it like the yeah is it the the rewarding from you know being admired by the crowd i mean what what's the what's the reward well there are many sides to it and i think everybody does it for different reasons hmm. for me it is these i was teaching creativity and expression but i was lacking my outlet and 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 you need to preach what you teach at some point you know and 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 then i found it uh i'm blogging but blogging is more like a side activity i'm not a writer mm. so my creative outlet became comedy this is what i create and i put it out there regularly once or twice a week it's tested by audience so it's validated Mm -hmm. Right, so it gave credibility to everything else I do mm -hmm. professionally. This is one aspect. If you teach music but you never play, are you a good musician? At the mm -hmm. end, you know, this is one thing. And uh, um, another thing is to receive the validation of a, of a room. There is really no feeling in the world for me as making an entire room laugh at mm -hmm. your joke, mm -hmm. uh, because it's just you, your personality, and your wit crafting words in a certain way that takes the entire room where you want them to be. Mm. Um, and this is incredibly empowering, so much so it could be even, it could, can get to somebody's head. And that's why I think comedy is good because it brings you down all the time. Mm -hmm. You become powerful by bringing yourself down. And, and I think that's a healthy attitude. And one last thing is it's also healing somehow because uh, our daughter was born almost two years ago, one and a half ago, and it was a lot of stress. And when I'm able to transform that, you, you earlier, you asked me, where do I find my material? Half of my brain is always thinking 
oh my god this is too crazy this has to go to a show somewhere somewhere mm-hmm. Uh, so there is part of my brain that's living in the moment and the other half is recording, right? So you might be translating a negative experience into, into something comedy. funny. Yeah. yeah, being present to my daughter's childbirth was such a shock. I was in trauma, like physical trauma for two days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it became a, 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 a comedy gig that I used for one year. Mm-hmm. And being able to, it's really processing the toxic shit that happened to you and you you make it into something positive and people laugh. Mm. And through that fire, it's purified. Mm. And I feel better and maybe the room feels better. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, you know, the net is positive. But the, the I mean, there is not always everyone happy. I mean, how do, do you get like hate mail or something? I mean, I know you have a blog that you, you get some feedback there, but I mean, do, how, how does this work? Do people communicate to you and tell you that you're an asshole and stuff like that or... Uh, I don't do, maybe because of who I am, I don't do confrontational stuff. Some comedians really confront, like challenge single members of the audience. And maybe they do mm. receive personal attack. I don't. So I may say something that's offensive to somebody, but it never happened to me that they say, hey, dude, that, that, that shit should go or how dare you. It happened to me that somebody comes and says, ah, you're... The, the, this stuff could potentially be funny, but it has to be good and you were not so good. And then, you know, it's one feedback. So I'm like, thank you very much for your uh, input. What is your comedy, by the way? What is your show? So mm. can I come and watch your shows? Ah, you don't have any shows. One of us is a comedian, the other one is not. Thank you for your input then. <laughs> Everybody's a critic, right? Fine. Thank you very much. But as I said, uh, uh, when I managed to have most of the people laughing most of the time, Mission accomplished. It's a mm. good show. So, so you've t- used the comedy somehow as a. It kind of that's where you. What do you say? It's an outlet for all your other things, and it's interesting, Carmina, that that you, <laughs> like, uh, how does your father feel about all this? Because you know he wanted you to study something technical or engineering. You study business that you never use. You go into storytelling that nobody understands what it is until they are victims of some sort of sub-story that guys oh, like no, you created. Oh, no, but they, they do. I mean, I'm doing quite well business-wise, so yeah, some people uh, must know. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. It's just behind the scenes. It's not It's not visible to us <laughs> in a way, you know, because it appears in something that we see, but we don't know the process behind it. Right. So storytelling that your father probably doesn't understand you moved away to a country that has a culture that he probably doesn't understand and then you do stand-up comedy which i don't know i, I would have to w- like to hear the the conversation when you told your your family oh, i can tell you right now yeah so first of all in, in storytelling they say when you want to tell a deep story go to the father conflict go with the conflict with the father so thank you very much for bringing that this is really giving us closure there was a big conflict with my dad Hmm. We worked on it and we fixed it. And uh, I have to say a big thank you to my father who had the humility and the instinct to understand. And also thanks me because I did my work and then I invited my dad to watch it. I'm already talking about my, my, my school and education work. So about 10 years ago now. He finally saw what I do with a group of students, with a class and he understood the value and he said, you're good at what you do. So we really had this closure moment, almost like in movies with tears and angels singing. Years later, he also came to my shows here in Prague. 
And he told me he understands English, mm. but he understands laughter. Mm. And so he said, you're good. So that part is done. I'm happy we have uh, now. We, we had conflicts in the past, right? But right now, we have a healthier relationship. I actually miss them a lot because they're in Italy. They're in lockdown forever. They're not seeing the grandchildren. Mm. And that's a pity. Mm. Uh, but I'm happy we found a healthier relationship. And also, once I became a father, something else changed. Because when I became a parent, I shifted. Uh, I am one of them now. Mm -hmm. And this is really something super powerful. You went over to the dark side? It is darker in ways because you have worries you would never have otherwise. Yeah. Um, so sometimes we do understand each other without speaking. Mm. And this is a new understanding I simply didn't have before. Mm. That's really interesting. I mean, it's a good way to actually... Because I guess a lot of people are, are, are somehow challenged with the relationship to the parents in being that the parents don't really understand the choices that we make. Because, the, I mean, also the generation differences of life, our, our age, you know, 40 plus oh, versus... Completely it's a completely different life. So the choices we have made are, are co totally unrelatable to our parents. Back then it was study, get a degree, find a job, yeah, you're marrying, sorted. Uh, exactly. And our generation was the first one to learn it was not going to work that no, way. Exactly. Right? Uh, your blog is mid-age warrior, midlife warrior. A midlife crisis warrior. So, um, we learn as we go. Yeah. Um, but it's also, yeah, I'm here to say it's also possible to fix it and heal it in a yeah. semi-positive way. One thing I didn't mention, I'm also studying <clears throat> as a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. So, right now I'm starting my third year although, again, COVID is posing everything. But going into my own psychotherapy and studying as a therapist is also bringing a huge dimension to that uh -huh. because, so to speak, I opened my closet and I had to face some things and clean some stuff, air out, and then fix a little bit of my uh, relationships with other relevant people. Not everything, mm -hmm. all the time, but a little here, a little there. And it's a constant work. Yeah, but uh, th I was actually going to ask you what's next. So you're you're studying uh, psychotherapy, and uh, do you see yourself leaving the storytelling, leaving the comedy, and you know, I don't know, become a therapist, or I mean, what's the, or is that just going to be one more layer on on what you have? Some people have their life all mapped out, and I envy those people. You know, I want to be a doctor, and then 30 years later, you're a cardiologist, you're in a hospital, you're the primary head of department. Great. I was never that guy. It took me almost 40 years to realize that that's what I am. I'm, maybe in the past, I would have been a traveling monk or a bard, mm -hmm. storyteller, chronicler, and that's who I am. Jack of all trades, master of none. So I keep adding another layer and, and it's worked out for me. Mm. Maybe this is interesting for those who listen. I've been self-employed. No Nobody listens to this, especially after oh. two hours. But <laughs> if you are here, after 20 years of self-employment, somehow it works. Yeah. And I think this is the thing. When I do the things that really passionate me, they find their way to the market. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because I'm not faking I'm not faking 1% of mm. what I say. Mm. Okay. Um, well, well, yeah. It's yeah. Great, great to have you, Carmine. I, I, uh, 
um, it's an interesting journey from from Napoli to stand to comedy in in Prague. Um, it's um, with a lot of pit stops on the way and, and twists and turns, rites yeah. of passages and, and stuff. Yeah. Um, where can people see more about you? You know, you have this blog. That's so. First of all, I hope people can see me in person, which is not so easy these days. If they're interested in my comedy work, they can find my stand-up comedy page on Facebook, Carmine Rodi, with the R, stand-up comedian, and just like it. And right now I'm just posting memes because that's the life we're doing. But back in the day, I would post all the shows live that I do, mostly in Prague, but also touring Europe in different places. So that's if people want to see the comedy I do. Other than that, my blog, which is Carmine Rodi, one word, carminerodi.blog, is where I write about storytelling used in education, but it's more my personal outlet. So sometimes I write about coronavirus and some other time I write about a movie I love and video games and stuff. And my professional side is carminerodi.net, where I have a, a small portfolio of training programs that I do, and people may find ideas of what they could join personally or with the organization if they want to 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 develop something with me professional based mm. and when do you think that the the comedy will go back on two three months who knows who knows in prague we had it pretty easy the first wave and so in june we were already doing live live shows again mm. but right now it's bad and i think maybe f January, February, yeah, I hope, so. I yeah. hope, because winter used to be the golden time for comedy, because, you know, it's cold outside and <laughs> long nights, Yeah, and uh, I miss those days. Yeah. Now I'm doing some shows online, I, I have a corporate gig in a couple of weeks, a company hired me, I will be emceeing, but it's weird, it's weird, man, because you, at least for me, I don't see people's eyes, yeah. and it's a tension that you... You need bodies in the room. Yeah, you need to get that connection. I mean, this is why I wanted, I want to do these recordings, you know, in person because that it, is true. It's much better. Anyway, uh, when people are home, you know, you, you have one one thousand distractions. You have your dog barking, you have the baby crying, and then you have Facebook open on the other side, mm. uh, and and so it's simply not the same. No. Uh, it's been great to have you, Carmina. Uh, Thank you very for much for inviting and, me. Uh, sharing all this. Um, those of you listening, thanks for listening in. Uh, please uh, follow the show on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean.com. Uh, you can follow the Facebook page, page that's called The Bunker, How the Hell Did We End Up Here? Uh, my personal Instagram is Midlife Crisis Warrior. Uh, I have the same on Twitter. And there is a Instagram page for the show as well, The Bunker Prague, I think it's called. Um, thanks to the sponsors, Alfred.cz and The Old Bar in Carlin. Um, they have been very supportive. And uh, I think this is kind of everything. Uh, yeah, I mean, share the show, obviously, review would tell everybody that I'm great and blah, blah, blah. And me too. Yeah, and Carmina, he needs he needs love as well. I mean, his his comedy is down, so we need to pep him up a little bit. And another baby's coming, so God knows I need help. Yeah, but that's it. Um, thanks for coming. See you guys around. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.